Good morning, church. This morning is Reformation Sunday, a Sunday where we would not be wrong to remember that God in a certain time in a certain place used men like Huss and Wycliffe and Zwingli and Calvin and Luther to bring about a reform in his church. But we're here together this morning to worship the God who reforms, the God who first formed and then reformed and continues reforming. As we step into this book of Malachi this morning, we'll be given the privilege of doing a bit of an Old Testament survey. We'll be going back and remembering that God first formed. He interrupted eternity, spoke formless and void cosmos, and formed. He formed man out of dust, out of clay. In his sovereignty, he allowed what was formed to also be deformed as sin marred what he had created. But then in his grace and his mercy, he took that which is deformed and he reforms. And that's what we're here to herald this morning. It's a joy to begin with you the book of Malachi. It's something that we'll look at over the next seven weeks together. And it is, in fact, in and of itself, a message of reform. God's word reforming his people. And our prayer is that he will use that to reform us today just as he did in the day of its writing. I'll enjoy, invite you to stand again to revere God's holy word and we'll read the first five verses together of this precious book. Malachi chapter one, beginning at verse one. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have, I loved, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning, grateful for your word, grateful that you would desire not only to form us, but also to reform us, grateful that you would desire to communicate to us through your holy word. We ask for your Holy Spirit this morning to help us understand, apply, and rightfully turn our hearts in response to your call to us. May you help us, Lord God, understand anything that, that would be a struggle to our human minds. May you fill us with the wisdom that is ours in Christ Jesus this morning. We ask these things dependent upon you. In your name, amen. You may be seated. We've got a lot of work cut out for us this morning, both doctrinally and in terms of historical context. I'm delighted to know that many of you have already begun studying, looking at videos, reading the minor prophets, sometimes even the wrong minor prophet, in hopes of getting ready for the context this morning. But don't worry, we'll unpack this together patiently and carefully so that we might understand what God has to tell us about through the book of Malachi. 
to help us grab some of the context, I want to, first of all, look at verse 1. Verse 1 is always the right place to start, right? No exception. This verse says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Recently, we mentioned we're going to be sticking with ESV, but I did cast a glance at the legacy standard version this week, and it says something very interesting that I think is, is noteworthy, and it says, the oracle of the word of Yahweh to Israel by the hand of Malachi. We need to understand this, first of all, because we, we need to realize what an oracle is. An oracle, an orator is one who speaks. For the Spanish speakers, orar is to speak this is the speaking of the word of Yahweh. Now, this is important, first of all, because an oracle is God's word being spoken. God speaks for himself. There are many in pagan religions that would go to certain prophet, prophets or prophetesses or men or women to go to hear for a, a word from a pagan God. Not so with Yahweh. Yahweh speaks for himself. In some of those pagan religions that were prevalent in the day of the writing of this particular minor prophet, people would often have to go to a specific place to hear for God's word. Not so with Yahweh. Yahweh speaks for himself and he, he uses instruments to deliver his message. As we look at verse 1 of this particular text, it says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Malachi, who was Malachi, right? You can go to Jeremiah chapter one, it'll tell us that Jeremiah was the son of so-and-so and that he began his prophetic ministry when he was young. You can go to chapter six of Isaiah and learn a little bit about who Isaiah was, the genealogy there, and in what year he received his prophetic prophecy. But the book of Malachi doesn't give us that. In fact, if we unpack all four chapters and go through this book together as we will, We'll learn nothing about Malachi. That's because God chooses to speak through this messenger without giving any information about who he is. The book of Haggai, verse one, verse, chapter 13, verse 1 says, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you declares the Lord. So the book of Haggai, we get to know who Haggai the prophet is. With Malachi, we don't know. And in fact, in Hebrew, the word for Malachi means the messenger, my messenger. The name of the messenger doesn't matter. What's important for us as we step to this is that we know whose message it is. It is the message of Yahweh. It is the message of the true and only living God. You see what's happening in the day of of Malachi, is that the people of Israel have been allowed to undergo divine punishment. Just as God promised, the people of Israel were carted off into Babylonian captivity. They were there for, for 70 years under the hands of, of an oppressor. They were taken away from their homeland, from Zion, from Jerusalem, from the place where they thought that God would speak to them, and lo and behold, even in captivity, God spoke to them. He'd use prophets like Jeremiah to, to send letters to those in exile and remind them of his great and precious promises. And that said, at the end of captivity, just as God promised, God sets his people free and allows them to go back 
And during the administrations of men like Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, they'd rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They'd rebuild the temple of the Lord. Yet in all of this, the captivity, the the freedom from captivity, while orchestrated by God, was done by pagan kings. Pagan kings who sought to gain favor through inclusion and diversity and allowing different religions. And so as the people of Israel went back to Judea, they were surrounded by other pagan nations. They were surrounded and encamped by pagan nations. And so for that reason, it's important for us to know that Yahweh identifies himself. He is speaking through his messenger to his people. Now, knowing that, we begin to to step towards the message. We don't know who Malachi is, but we're going to see what the message is of God to his people. Verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. What an incredible statement. I have loved you. I did love you. I do love you. I will love you. This is hesed. This is God, covenant God, Yahweh God, reminding his people that he has loved them. And as we remember what God has just done for his people, we ought to find this statement just a little bit intriguing, right? How is it that these people are asking God if he loves them? God begins to do a a dialogue back and forth with his people. In fact, throughout this entire letter, we'll find a style similar to what we heard in Romans chapter nine today. We'll see a style where God poses a question and his people hypothetically provide a response. It's a dialogue. And in the fact, in the case of the book of Malachi, it's written like a legal allegation. Some of you may have received a bookmark on your way in. If you didn't, don't worry. We'll have them for you next week. That lays out for us what these legal allegations are. What are these charges of God against his people as he calls them to be reformed? Now, this is important. First of all, before we look at this statement about God's love for them, we need to recognize that the uh, first sentence, it says, the word of the Lord by Malachi. The other translation would, would lay this out by the hand of Malachi, It's unique, we think of different prophets that would have gone through the streets crying aloud, right? Or speaking in various ways, but it would seem that Malachi's message was put in in writing. This is critical because one of the things that God did in his sovereignty was during the time of Babylonian captivity, the people of God were made to be scribes, sometimes eunuchs, and serve the Babylonians as scribes and note takers, the Babylonians had great libraries and archives. And God's people learned to put things in writing during their time in captivity. And so there are five other minor prophets that came out of the post-exilic period. If you want to make a note of these, it's good because you might get some homework. Fair warning. The five minor prophets that came out of the time after the Babylonian captivity would be, of course, Malachi, Obadiah, Joel, Haggai, and Zechariah. So those five books were probably not spoken words as much as they were written words. So God's people may have received in writing these allegations. This dialogue 
where God uses his messenger to bring about some accusations. Now you'll see in the, the handout that you've got here that there's a total of six different allegations, but I wanna make this much easier for you, and I also wanna keep you from being overwhelmed and let you know that there are three overall sections that we're gonna go through in Malachi, and we're gonna get through the first one of those three today. Come away with some reassurance that we're gonna get through this and learn. The first section is that, that God accuses his people of, and all these three words start with I, by the way. God re- accuses them of ingratitude. Their hearts are ungrateful. The second section that we'll move into in the, the following four weeks or so, deal with the sin of irreverence, a lack of proper worship, a proper fear of the Lord that would require them to be reformed. And the third eye is that his people were incapable. They were incapable of themselves of being reformed. And we need him and this future promises of Christ to truly be reformed. So we got those three eyes? You got them? Got them. Good. Ingratitude, we'll see today. So as we begin to unpack this first accusation, this first charge of ingratitude, God says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Now think about human relationships for just a minute. Some of you may have had a, a dating relationship before, and it, it's really cute in the first few times that you're getting to know somebody, they're like, hey, do you really love me? Right, you know the flower petals, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. But as time unfolds, there becomes a point in which to be asked, do you love me, would be met with indignation. Consider Peter for just a minute. Jesus asks him, do you love me? Well, well yes, I, I love you. And Jesus asks him again, do you, do you love me? And Peter is flustered, you can just feel it. Yes, I love you. Three times he's asked that question. So imagine faithful covenant Yahweh God being asked the question, do you love me? That stings just a bit to think about, doesn't it? But back up for a minute. Let's put this in context yet again. These people, these men and women in the time of Malachi are about a hundred years after captivity ends. They've seen Ezra. They've seen Zerubbabel, who, by the way, his name means born in Babylon, right? We've seen Nehemiah. We've seen God's perfect promises being fulfilled. They came back out of captivity just like God promised through Jeremiah. He set the captives free. And yet they ask, have you loved us? Put that in our own context as New Covenant believers. What have we learned through our study of Ephesians, right? We once were dead. Thank you. We once walked in darkness. We were once far away, but we've been brought near. So how is it that God, having set his people free from captivity, would dare ask, how have you loved us? Furthermore, if we look at what God has done to bring them to, the, to this point, it's worth looking at Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, verses 16 through 19, we see a prayer of Daniel. We see Daniel, yet in captivity, 
himself very familiar with the works of a scribe and writing things down and all that the Babylonians did. And he goes back and he finds what Jeremiah had written. And he prays to God and says, God, you promised this. Isn't that what we do when we pray? We remind God of his promises. And you know what? God is faithful to act upon his promises. The verse says, do not delay for your own sake, oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel prays that God would bring his people out of captivity just as he promised for the sake of his name. That's the second thing I want to observe, and this is even before we get into the, the verses on sovereign election, right? He's freed us from captivity, and yet we ask, how have you loved us? He has answered our prayer for his namesake, yet we ask, how have you loved us? Then we get into the, the structure of this next part of the sentence, and, and God responds, and he says, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother? All right, this is where we have to put on our thinking hats a little bit and unpack what we know. We know that God created Adam. Adam sinned. He was kicked out of the garden. Humanity proliferated. They were marred by sin. They were deformed. God got to a point where he was up to here with his wrath. And he speaks to Noah, and he says, look, I got to start this thing all over again. And he lets Noah, still a sinner, onto a boat. He floods the earth, he destroys sinners, and he allows Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, still sinners, to get off that ark. Of his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, one of them, Shem, where we get the word Sem, his descendant is Abraham. You may have heard the term even in the news this week, anti-Semitic, right? Anti-Semite. Anyone who is a descendant of Shem, thereby Abraham. So we follow Abraham's tree down and we get to his son Isaac. Isaac, God spared him from being sacrificed. And he, with his wife, is to have sons, twins, Jacob and Esau. Let's go do our... Genesis survey for this week. Brother Robert took us through one a couple of weeks ago. We got to, and he died, <laughs> and he died. We'll do another Genesis survey today. We'll go through and we'll look at a few highlights to help us understand rightly how God's perfect plan brought about his clear sovereign choice. If we look at Genesis chapter 5, 25 rather, beginning at verse 21, it says, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her and she said, if this is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two nations from within you shall be divided. And the one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. When her days came to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out, all, came out red and his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel so that his name was called Jacob. 
Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. So here we see these, these twins. They're, before they're even born, God speaks to Rebecca and says, from these two young men, you'll get two nations. We'll come to know that the nation that descended from Jacob, God would rename to Israel. And the nation that would come from Esau would become known as the Edomites. And these two nations are being selected by God to play a particular role in his story of redemptive drama. The one that's supposed to be the firstborn. What do we know about the firstborn? The firstborn in, in that time and place was to get the inheritance, was to have a position of special favor, was to have a particular blessing. But God as he does, flips the script. Esau, in a moment of hunger and sinfulness, exchanges his birthright with his brother. He sells it to him. Jacob, in a moment of deceit, his name meaning the one who grabbed hold of the heel or the deceiver, takes the blessing of the firstborn. That exchange has so many implications as we look at scriptural narrative. We won't get into all of those now, but what we can understand is that God ordained what was going to happen. These two would be born to a barren woman up in years, that they would form two important nations that would be throughout the pages of redemptive history. And God would pick one before the other. Now, I'm sure you'd like for me to explain this to you, and I can't. But thankfully, the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 9, which we read together and we'll look at it again, provides his commentary on what's happening here. If you would, begin with me at verse 9 of chapter 9. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So there it is. Brother Paul comes to the same conclusion. I can't tell you why. I can only tell you that God did this before they were even born, before they had done either good or bad, in order that they couldn't say that it was because of their works. So how appropriate that we start our reading on a Sunday morning, on Reformation Sunday, and we're like, oh yeah, we get sovereign election this morning. This is one of those distinctives that makes us special. This is a hallmark of Reformed theology. Sovereign election. It confounds, it divides, it frustrates. It makes us a reformed church. But guess what? When God brings about his message of reform, what he wants to tell us is not because of works, but because of him who calls. Reformed theology ought not ever cause us to beat our chests in pride. It ought to always point us to only by faith, only by Christ, only by grace. A message of reform begins there and it ends there. You did nothing to get picked. 
Jacob, the second born, the deceiver, picked because of God's sovereign grace. We could spend a lifetime trying to understand this doctrine, this truth, but I'll leave it simple for you. It's so you know that it's not of you. Praise God, we got to see that in Ephesians, right? Ephesians starts out with that. From eternity past, he chose us. And it's not by works, lest anyone should boast. So, so far, I got a couple of different applications I want us to keep in mind when, when we are tempted to ask, does God love us? First of all, he set us free from captivity. Second of all, he answered our prayers for his great namesake. And third of all, he chose us before you did anything good or bad. What's more, as we return to our text in Malachi chapter 1, the question, but you say, how have I loved you? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. A synonym for this word, of course, hated, is to have rejected. And it's important for us to, to understand that as well. If you would, Genesis chapter 27, in verse 36, we see what's happening as Jacob goes and takes the blessing of his brother and Esau is, of course, indignant. In verse 36, it says, Esau says, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright and now behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? And Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I have made him Lord over you and all of his brothers I have given and all of his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered him and said, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother." But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which the father had blessed him. You see, this is sibling rivalry at its very finest. One is picked and preferred over the other. One takes the blessing of his father, and now there is a lasting, vehement debate between them, a conflict. It says that just as there is a rejection by the father. So there also, Esau hates his brother. Now, this is really important for us to understand. First of all, we know that God chose Jacob irregardless of whatever he had done, whether good or evil. We also understand when we, when we look at sovereign election that God chose Jacob even though he was a deceiver. He cheated his brother twice, took the birthright, took the blessing. The application there for us is that though we have sinned grievously, though we are sinners by our nature, God graciously still chooses us and uses us and loves us. Now, in this narrative between Jacob and Esau, we need to understand a lot of what's happening in history. For those of you who like journalism, it's always good to kind of figure out the who, the what, the where, the when, and the how. Hopefully, as we move through Malachi together, we'll be able to answer some of those questions. 
But one of the things that's important for us to understand is that those five minor prophets that were written down post-exile, God was gracious in not only giving his word to his people Israel, but also to the descendants of Esau, to the Edomites. God speaks his message, declaring his power, declaring his mercy, declaring his justice, not only to his people, but also to his adversaries. So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles, please, to that huge, long book of Obadiah. I'll give you a minute to find it. And as we just learned, Obadiah was written at the same time as Malachi. It's one of those prophets that we find and one chapter long. And it helps us understand some context here. So the people of Israel, as we know, were carted off into captivity by the Babylonians. The Babylonians were used as God's instrument to punish his people for their unfaithfulness. God spoke certain promises to them that if they didn't repent, they would have a consequence. And lo and behold, God faithful to his word, they had a consequence. Now, Jacob, whose name was Israel, that nation, would have been around the city of Jerusalem. Just to the east of there, Esau, the Edomites, inhabited their place. And the Edomites lived in a country whose, whose soil and, and topography was red, just like Esau's hair, Edom, red. In fact, for those of you who have seen Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, there's a place there, Petra in Jordan, that was likely considered to be one of the outposts of the Edomites. It was high in the cleft of the rock. It was set apart and had some military advantages. Now, if you think about the path of the Babylonian Empire, some of your Bibles might have a map at the back, and you can see how the Babylonians move over, and they move in on the people of Jerusalem. Well, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, betrayed their brother, and they told the Babylonians, you know what, you guys can have a rite of passage. Just come on through. We don't want war with you guys. Just come on through and attack Israel, and when you attack Israel and drag them off to captivity, you guys are welcome to just pass on through. You can camp for the night if you like, but leave us alone. So literally what Esau did, the descendants of Esau, the Edomites did, is they betrayed their brother. God's people, protected by God's grace and God's election, wanted to be vindicated. In fact, if we find the book of Obadiah together, we'll find that the entire book is dedicated to delivering a message to the Edomites. We see in, in particular that God's charge against them is that the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock and your lofty dwelling and who say in your heart, who will bring me down? You see these Edomites? They just like Isaac said to them, you're going to live by the sword. You're going to have military might. You're going to have military successes. But you're going to hate your brother. And as we go through that, that book of, of Obadiah, you'll see the chapters that ensue. God promises that they will be laid waste. They may have gotten away with it by making that treaty with the Babylonians. If you skim read that section, you'll find that there's a particular passage that talks about how the Edomites, in fact, fell. They let their enemies into their city. They let them in. They were so proud. They're like, you know what? We made this deal together. Why don't you come on in? Have, have dinner with us. And they invited them into their camp. 
and they fell at the hands of their enemy. Their pride got the best of them. But now, back in in the day of Malachi, we've got a, a different problem brewing here. We've got the fact that God tells the people of Edom that they will never again rebuild. God tells the people of Israel that they will be carried off into captivity, but that they'll get to rebuild. You see the difference? Both are under the hand of divine judgment. One is given a chance to repent, the other is not. This is very clear if we look at verse 3 here of Malachi chapter 1. It says, Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If we look at Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 11, we'll see that God promises that the jackals of the desert, like a coyote, would be the only thing left living running through the streets of destroyed Jerusalem. The jackals. And then God promises to the Edomites, guess what? You'll always, you'll never rebuild. You'll always be a place where the jackals of the desert, of the desert live. But as the people of Israel were given a, this decree by the, by the Babylonians and the Persians to go back to their homeland, guess what? The Edomites also got to go free. They got sent back and, and put in a little province right next to Judah called Idumea. And the Edomites started to grow again in number. And God's people are like, what gives? He promised us they wouldn't be back again. And there they are again. They start to, to focus on and call into question God's faithful promise. And God says, don't you worry about them. Don't you worry about your adversary. Worry about yourselves. Look at me. Look at my love for you. How many times do we see that in the pages of Scripture? We say, God, why do the wicked prosper? Why does it look like they're always getting away with it? How is it that you've chosen us and it looks like things are going better for them than for us? God says, have I not always been faithful to my promises? God says here, he says, if Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. See, God says, look, the story's not over yet, Israel. The story's not completed yet. I will be faithful to my word. Don't you worry. Everything that is prophesied through the book of Obadiah, everything that is laid out for that destruction of your adversary, I'll take care of that because I am faithful to my promises. As we move through that, we see that, that God responds to his people's belligerent question, doubtful question, untrusting question. Do you love us? By saying, set free from captivity, answered prayers, been faithful. And in due time, act with justice. And then he, he goes on and we begin to understand that God's mercy is shown in what is said here. He says, they will be the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Hebrews chapter 12 Verses 16 and 17 call out something really interesting. The, the author of Hebrews makes a statement talking about Esau. And he says, 
Unlike Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal, for we know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So you see this pattern throughout what God does with these Edomites, right? That Esau would have loved to have gone back and maybe planned his meals a little bit better and not sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. And, and with an ungodly sorrow, he cries out and says, well, if I could have done that all over again. And the author of Hebrews says, he didn't have a chance to repent. And if we look at this text here, Malachi 1.4, God says, those people, those are going to be called the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Those are terrifying words. The, the fact that, that God's mercy would be known to us as his people should cause us great joy, great rejoicing. We, look what we've been freed from. We have been given an opportunity to repent and turn to him. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 and 7 say, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. You see, as God reforms his people, he offers them the opportunity to turn to him in repentance because of his mercy and because of his love. If we follow redemptive history, we'll see that formation and reformation are a pattern that continues on. If we look at the people of Israel, we can just shake our heads with this belief that they still don't get it, right? Like he brought them out of captivity once. They came out of, of Egypt. He was faithful in putting them in the promised land. And yet still they ask, have you loved us? And now we find ourselves, they've come out of Babylonian captivity and they've, they've survived as a remnant and they're back in the city of Jerusalem and they have the opportunity to go to God's house and worship him. And yet still they ask, have you loved us? You see, as we look at our own sinful hearts, we acknowledge the fact that, well, Christ has offered us his forgiveness and his mercy, and while Christ has put his effectual call on us, the need for reform for us is daily. Did the Protestant Reformation fix the church? Don't think so. We as followers of Christ, are in need of daily and continual reform. God will continue to use his messengers to deliver a message of reform, but until Christ comes again, the Reformation must continue. We continue to be reformed, and that's what verse 5 takes us to today. Verse 5 takes us to the fact that as God affirms his love for the people of Israel by way of his messenger, he wants them to, to know that ultimately they are incapable of responding to the call for reform. And so God makes a promise that points us to Messiah. Verse five says, your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Let's think about this for just a second. It's easy for people to read this and get hung up with the border of Israel, Right? You, you, you read that to a, a certain uh, type of, of reader, and they're going to think, oh, good. Even the people in Malachi's day, right? They would have said, oh, well, we'd like to see our borders getting bigger. We'd like to go back to the Israel we used to have, 
all we've got now is this little Judean province, and we've got the Idumeans next door, and we have to pay taxes back to the Persian kings, and this is just a mess. We'd really like to see our, our nation getting bigger. We'd really like to see all of these great precious promises that were given to Abraham fulfilled. But you know what? God's not concerned with the border of Israel. What God is concerned with is this statement, great is the Lord. You'll see it with your eyes. Great is the Lord. What he's promising there, what he's pointing to, is the one who would ultimately come and reform. Who would come and reform and call for himself his own people. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Again, the Apostle Paul helps us understand a bit of what the Lord is saying as he points to great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Beyond, another way of saying that, is above the border of Israel. More importantly than, higher than. Let's begin at Galatians chapter 3. And we'll start at verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Marvel at this for just a moment. It says that scripture preached the gospel to Abraham. Way back in Genesis, the gospel being preached, the promise that through Abraham, all nations would come to know the greatness of God. Now, if we do the math here, we've only got two nations in Rebecca's womb, right? We got Jacob and we got Esau. But the promise wasn't just to those two nations, it's to all nations. And that we understand just a little bit better by, by moving on to verse 16 of the same chapter, Galatians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. You see that? What he's pointing to is that all nations would come to know the living, the merciful, the gracious creator God, who both forms and reforms, and they would do so through the God-man, through Jesus Christ. There is no alternative path. There is no other way. There is only this one to whom the offspring would come. Christ, the firstborn. Think about that for just a minute. If the firstborn has the right to all inheritance, has the right to all of that is belonging to his father, he exchanged that. No one deceived him. He gave it willingly to us. Isn't that beautiful? We can go back and we can look at what we see in Ephesians and see how all of Malachi comes to perfect fruition. Praise God for his faithfulness in Christ. All nations will say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. As we think of that, all nations will come to, to understand perfectly what it is to be reformed. All creation will be, made, will be made new. Revelation 15, verse 3 says, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, the God Almighty. 
Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. Now, some of you did an incredible job doing homework in advance of this week to prepare on Old Testament. But as we get excited about moving into this precious book together, I don't want us to forget where we came from. So your homework this week is going to take us back to Ephesians, okay? If you've got a pen, I want you to write down five things that we see as God calls us to reform in Malachi. First of all, captivity is over. Second of all, promises and prayers have been answered. Prayers have been fulfilled. He has chosen us. And he loves us even in spite of our sin. Okay? So we find those realities in what God is telling his people in this book. But I want you to go back through the book of Ephesians that we had 28 weeks together to study. And I want you to see how God faithfully reminds us of each of those truths. As new covenant believers, we come to understand that our captivity has been ended through Christ Jesus. We have come to understand that all of the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ Jesus. We find that his promises are faithfully fulfilled. We find and that we're reminded that his sovereign election from eternity past has nothing to do with anything that we have done. And we find that he loves us and calls us to live worthy of our calling even when we're not. That's what he has done for us as he's reformed us. If you're here this morning and you don't understand what all of these, these deep truths like sovereign election are all about, join the club. We need the spirit of Christ to illuminate this to us. But I can tell you one thing that we see that characterized by those who have responded to God's effectual calling is them acknowledging that it's all from him. As we celebrate what is reformation, celebrate the fact that Christ has done it all for us. The message of reformation is from the God who reforms. May he reform us this week as we draw near to his precious word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you and we are thankful that there is only one name under heaven by which we must be saved. That is the name of Jesus Christ, the one who would come and he would give up himself, give up his inheritance, his place, his status, so that we might be the elect. Thank you, God, for calling us to yourself through your word and through your message. We pray, Lord God, that you would continue to give us hearts of flesh, that you would make us moldable and malleable as your people, that you would form us in your hands like the loving potter that you are. Lord God, might you also use us? We recognize as we see your word that you used your people to point to the praise of your glorious grace. Would you do that in us, Lord God? Continue to draw us to yourself and form us according to your will. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Beloved, let's stand together and sing our hymn of the month, Reformation Hymn.
Glory be, glory be to God alone. 